0: Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, Uh, 1,000 years of people behaving badly. Uh, We're very glad to get to talk to you today because there's been some very bad behavior, very bad behavior in our nation this week. And so we're, as usual, we're glad to be able to talk about some very old bad behavior that happened a long time ago. I'm Ann Brannan. I'm your host in Albuquerque.
1: And I'm Michelle Butler in Maryland, the most medieval state in America.
0: And today, we are talking about Sir Thomas Mallory, who ended up in prison for, well, actually, when he finally ended up in prison, it was for something that really he actually had done. But he had gotten into trouble a lot before then, 1443, 1451, 1452, 1468. Finally, 1468, he actually really had done some things. The others were, we don't really know how much they were true. But uh, Sir Thomas Mallory, and he's of interest not just because he had a crime, uh, but because he is the author of uh, Mort d'Arthur, which is a highly influential text about King Arthur. So we have a lot to say about that later because hello, literature and us. But this is the guy we have finally decided is, yes, is the Thomas Mallory who wrote the uh, Mort d'Arthur. There are some other um, possibilities. The other possibilities are the Thomas Mallory of Papworth, who wasn't ever knighted, so he can't have been Sir Thomas Mallory, and Thomas Mallory of Hutton Conyers, who also wasn't knighted and therefore could not have been Sir Thomas Mallory, and some Welsh guy, we don't know what, we, we're completely unidentified, but Mallory might have been Mailer, which, okay, fine, but no. Anyway, any rate, so this is Thomas Mallory of Newbold Revel, Sir Thomas Mallory of New New Bold Revel. He was born about 1415, and he was... Hello?
1: I was going to say that not everybody, one of the biographies I read, thinks that that probably is too late of a date. Field says it's that late, but this one, Hardyman thinks it's probably... Uh, he was probably born earlier than that,
0: so we don't know really when his birthday is. But we know it was in the very first part of the it's 15th century. Be
1: in that 20-year time period between <laughs> 1399 to 1415.
0: Well, thank you then. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of a while, but at any rate, it's in there someplace. And he was the son of Sir John Mallory. And by the 8th of October in 1441, he had been knighted. So he's knighted sometime before then. But that's the point at which we know that he, by that time he's Sir Thomas Mallory. So this is great for true crime and evil because it's like, you know, we get a crime and we get Mort Darthur. So it's cool. there is a crime. Yay. He served under Henry Beecham. He was elected to parliament in 1443 for Warwickshire. He was an elector for Northamptonshire. He served on a royal commission for Warwickshire. And in 1449, he was a member of parliament for Great Bedouin. And then after that, things sort of start to fall apart. As early as 1443, he and an accomplice were accused of kidnapping and robbery, of uh, robbing some guy named Thomas Smith, though he wasn't convicted for that. By In 1451, he was accused of ambushing Humphrey Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, who had, Buckingham had inherited his mother's lands, um, which were pretty vast, and this included the Midlands where Thomas Mallory was operating and they they ended up in some giant personal feud It's a really bad
1: idea to get a nobleman mad at you,
0: yeah, because Mallory's not a noble, he's a knight he's not actually he's not actually an earl, but that That wasn't proven. However, later that year, he extorted money from several people. He broke into a house. He stole some goods and he raped the woman of the house. And then he attacked her again a couple of months later. And he and his cohorts were ordered to be arrested, but they weren't. And they continued to commit violent robberies and the like. And finally, he did get arrested and then he escaped and. Most of the people, if not all of them, most of the people that he is said to have been attacking were Buckingham supporters. Michelle has more to say about this in a bit. So finally, there was a trial. Yay, there was a trial, actual trial. That was the late summer, August of 1451. And that trial happened in Buckingham's place of power. And Mallory got convicted and he was sent to London to the Marshalsea prison. And I want to say some things about Marshalsea because Marshalsea is gone now, but you'll read that it's in London, it it is, where it is where it was, is now London, but at that point, it was not actually London, it was Southwark, uh, and that was separate from London, and later, by the 18th century, it would become, it would house mostly debtors, many of whom starved because they didn't have money to pay for their food, which was what you had to do if you wanted to not die in prison, and that's where Dickens' father got sent, so it's Marshall, C- oh. <laughs> I had told Michelle that Dickens was going to show up. It's Marshalsea that's in Dickens' mind when he's writing his debtor prison scenes. That's what he's thinking of, and it's actually going to get torn down in 1870. So Dickens al- is alive to see that, and he says, "Good riddance!" Yay! So he was sent to Marshalsea, and he demanded a real trial, a retrial with a jury that was made up of people from his county, which seems quite fair, doesn't it? But he didn't get one. But he was released. But then. In March of 1452, he was back at Marshalsea. I'm not clear why on this. He escaped back in prison within a month, released on bail May 1453. Da, 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 da. Rob- then he was arrested in Colchester for robbery and horse thieving. He escaped. He was caught. He was taken back to Marshalsea. And final, he, finally, he was pardoned. Yay, in 1461. So he'd been convicted once by that point. Okay, fine for stuff. Do you want to say something about all that? Because I'm going to get into what he actually, what we know he actually did. But would you like to say something about this early crime spree, which seems fairly dramatic and not so nice? You had something you wanted to say about the stuff with Buckingham and whether or not any of those crimes actually happened? So one of the
1: points that's being made in Christina Hardyman's biography from 2005, which which is a nice place to go. To have an introduction to Mallory. It's similar to the book that I had read about Beckett in that it is a historian who is not a medievalist, but a historian who's, you know, competent to go and, and gather all this stuff and read it and, and um, weigh it. And it's published by um, a popular, popular press rather than an academic press, all of which adds up to a readable book because it's intended for a general audience rather than an academic audience.
0: Does it give you citations so you know where stuff comes from, or is it more general than that?
1: There is an absolutely humongous bibliography.
0: Yay, all right. okay. and there
1: <laughs> and there are quite a lot of notes as well. Okay, so, good. So I think it is better noted than the 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 Beckett one was.
0: Okay. There was an interesting connection
1: with Beckett actually that. Gets mentioned because this this book goes pretty far back and talks about Mallory's family to explain where they got their money from. Before yeah. it talks about Mallory specifically,
0: where did they get their money
1: from? They are descended from Normans, and through uh, a couple couple hundred years of good marrying, oh. they become a family with some holdings. You know, okay. seven thousand acres. Okay. In the Midlands, in, in Warwickshire, hmm. which is pretty amazing. But he, here is this really th- interesting connection with Beckett, since we just did Beckett. Henry the Fourth, and here I'm just going to start quoting, was the first English king to be anointed at his coronation with a miraculous oil preserved in a crystal phial enclosed in a solid gold eagle, only just rediscovered, it had men said been given to Saint Thomas Becket by the Virgin Mary herself.
0: Mm-mm, probably so. Sure, I'll go with that. Yeah, I'm
1: sure that that's totally what happened. <laughs> Henry the Fourth, the usurper, absolutely did not need to pull a trump card out of the air <laughs> in the form of a magic oil that Thomas Becket had gotten from the Virgin Mary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what and and we're connecting this to Mallory? Tell me, tell me the link. Oh, oh,
1: sorry. The the <laughs> link, the link, the link is that um, John Mallory almost certainly was having to work hard to ingratiate himself with Henry the Fourth because his overlord John uh, Thomas Holland had just been executed for trying to lead a rebellion um, uh, over Twelfth Night against the newly ensconced Henry the IV uh,
0: who had, who had, you know, the Virgin Mary had actually given them yeah. some
1: oil. Okay. Yeah. So, so John Mallory ends up having to go fight against the Scots and then into Wales, trying to work, work his way back into the good graces of the King. And he was actually in prison for a little while. Um, after, <laughs> I know after thomas holland's failed um the overlord thomas hollison's failed um attempt to capture henry the fourth over twelfth night then his john john mallory ends up in prison for a little while in the tower in the tower under suspicion of having been having been part of the plot
0: Interesting. So, every everything gets all connected. So, um, yes, but the the crimes the, <laughs> the crimes that Mallory did or is said to have done bu- before fourteen sixty eight. The problem is that he's being charged with these crimes in Buckingham's lands, right? by Buckingham and he's being charged for harming Buckingham supporters. And there's some question as to whether or not this actually happened. Is that what you were telling me?
1: Oh, um, yes. The the Hardiman wants to rem- make the point that the 15th century I- is, of course, during this time of tremendous upheaval, right? We start with the usurpation of Henry the Fourth and the almost probable murder Disappearance of Richard II died of pure grief, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and then yeah. of course we slide into the Wars of the Roses. By the middle of the fifteenth century, and one of the things that's happening during that time period is the discovery that as the legal structures have grown and become more complicated, they can be weaponized.
0: Uh huh. So you could indeed, if you were someone who had a great deal of power, get a minor knight arrested for things which he might not have done
1: yes which of course is something we still see right you have you have the ability to file frivolous lawsuits and and tie things up and you know there there are ways there are ways to take the legal system and turn it into a bludgeon against somebody else and of course with with the amount of chaos that is going on throughout the 15th century it's it's not impossible to have been on the wrong side of the wars of the roses and even you know earlier than that and end up in somebody's sights
0: somebody powerful sights Okay, so in Mallory's case, he's accused of a whole lot of stuff. He's convicted once, but the one time when he's convicted, it's with a jury that is that is made up of Buckingham's men. So what we know is that he was accused of a whole bunch of things and that he might or might not have done them. So that's where we're standing on this, yeah?
1: Yeah. Okay, I think that's fair it's It's one of these kind of meta potentially meta crimes, right because he's accused of a crime, but it's possible that the accusation itself is a is a criminal misuse of the justice system
0: okay all right okay so so we go on, and he's actually pardoned uh in fourteen sixty one fair enough that that at the point at which Edward the Fourth comes into power. But by 1468, he changed from being a Yorkist, even though Edward IV had been the one who pardoned him, into entering into a plot with Richard Neville uh, to overthrow the king. Okay, this actually happened. This hasn't got anything to do with Buckinghamshire. Now we know. So prison again in 1468, and there were, and then there were a couple of general pardons of because we're going back and forth with Lancaster, York and people are get people switch sides, people get pardoned, there's a lot of flux in here. And if you want to hear more about that, you can go to our podcast on The Princes in the Tower part 1 where we explain the Cousins War, which is what the War of the Roses actually is, but I move on. So there're a couple of general pardons and he didn't get p- pardoned and he wasn't released until 1470. Uh, when which is when King Edward went into exile and Henry the Fourth became king again for a while and that would and then he died in 1471 and the marker over over his grave uh, in which was in the in the in the church refers to him as Valens miles, valiant soldier nothing about anything else and so so he actually did do something which he went to prison for rightly which was really you're not supposed to be in plots against the king. It's called insurrection and treason, isn't it, Michelle? Mm. (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, we're very familiar with insurrection and treason today. Anyway, so, yeah, so he wasn't included in the general pardons.
1: Yep, he had come to someone's specific attention.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's safe to say that during his lifetime, Thomas Mallory pissed a whole lot of people off. I think that's fair. Don't you think so, Michelle?
1: He, he doesn't seem to have been a go-along-to-get-along sort of guy.
0: <laughs> no, he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we think that he wrote that... And the reason he comes down to us, he's, just, he's not just another knight who was part of all this back and forth in the before and before and during the Wars and the Roses. He's also the person that we believe wrote Mort d'Arthur, which probably would have happened while he was at Newgate, not Marshalsea, because at Newgate he would have had access to the library at the Greyfriars Monastery, which was like next door or something. And he must have had access to, in terms of the Arthurian Arthurian works that come down to him that he, that he includes that are clearly his sources for the Mort d'Arthur. The Vulgate cycle, the post-Vulgate cycle, Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, the alliterative Mort Arthur, the stanzaic Mort d'Arthur. Uh, none of the Welsh, because of course he couldn't read Welsh, even if it had been in the library, which I kind of doubt. But yeah, anything from France. So none of the German, none of the Welsh.
1: No, but he, that means he can read Latin and French.
0: Mm-hmm. He can read Latin French and English yeah so he's pretty damn well educated and that's a lot of material that is so much material as Michelle and I can attest because we've read it mm-hmm. <laughs> the work when he he used all this material and he put together this work which was in eight books we think of it as a as a thing with some unity but that may be only because when William Caxton the guy who made printing a big deal in England, when William Caxton published it, he put it all together as one work. So the extent to which Mallory thought of it as one work is debated.
1: Yeah. It doesn't matter whether a random knight in the 15th century is committing a bunch of crimes or or just has annoyed somebody and is being accused of them spuriously. But it matters that the guy who has been identified as the author of The the Mort, has been accused of those things because it feels so incompatible with the book. (laughs) Doesn't it just, which is all about chivalry, like, and crap like that. Yeah, this is what has been giving people trouble ever since the discovery of those records, because we didn't know. (laughs) The records were discovered in the 1920s of the, the criminal, the court records. Those weren't discovered until the 1920s. And then the Winchester manuscript was found in 1934. So the 20th century was big for Mallory studies.
0: Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. oh and the winchester man- manuscript by the way little sideline uh was found somebody was looking at a manuscript that manuscripts don't have titles they have incipits, the thing that they begin with and so it began with one thing and then he kept reading it and it turned out to be the Mort darthur and we had had no manuscript of it before we had ho- had the print caxton's printed text and so that's when we were able to see the earliest version that we've got of what mallory had put together. Yeah, and so you can build an entire career on finding that kind of thing. Yep.
1: Yeah. That is the sort of thing that little graduate students go to bed dreaming of. It's not sugar plums. <laughs> it's undiscovered manuscripts.
0: Yes. My dissertation, stuff I found in a box.
1: Mm. And it there are significant differences. Caxton edited out not not There aren't huge differences in the stories themselves, but there's much more about Mallory in the manuscript because there's several places at the end of Tales where he says... No, please play, pray for the author of this work who is currently imprisoned. And
0: oh, yeah, that's how we know that it, he wrote it in prison and not at his house in between incarcerations, because he says so. But all of that had been edited out by Caxton. There's just one uh, plea
1: at the end of the manuscript or at the end of the printed edition where Caxton allows that one to stand and, and have the author reach out to the reader and ask for prayers but in the manuscript there there's about six of them increasingly sad actually
0: Well, that may well mean that he had thought of it as different books, because you you typically would end a book with an exhortation to pray for the writer. You don't yeah. usually stick it in the middle.
1: I think Eugene Vinavar, um, who edited the Winchester manuscript, used those as markers for where to, where to separate it into separate tales.
0: So the thing about the Arthurian legend, it's like, in general, the popular conception of the Arthurian legend is that it's a legend, but it isn't. It's a whole lot of different separate stories that have some characters and plot lines in common or not. Because the Mort d'Arthur is the most ubiquitous and pervasive of the Arthurian texts that come down to us, we tend to think of it as a Unified story, but it's not. The first mention we have of Arthur is uh, Nennius's history from the ninth century, but that's not a reliable history, even if it was written by a Welshman. I've got to admit, it's not. <laughs> And there might have been an actual Arthur, maybe not, but there's no substantive evidence for him. And he's not in any of the histories from the time that he's supposedly living in. He's supposedly in a battle that's happening in the sixth century. None of the contemporary histories, and we do have them, mention him, which you would think they would if he's that big a deal. But the literary sources start in Wales and Brittany and are. Completely varied. Sometimes he's a, he's a warrior. He's a superhero. He's connected to deities and fairies, depending on which uh, text you're reading. He then he's in some Latin text from about the 11th century on. As some in some lives of the saints. No, uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth is the first that write that writes substantially of him that we have extant from about 1138. It features him, and it had a lot, that had a lot of impact on future tellings, but in the, thir- the 12th and 13th centuries, he shows up in romances in French. Uh, Marie de France, uh, Chrétien de Troyes, the Vulgate cycle, the post-Vulgate cycle, and Mallory pulls a whole lot of that together, You know, as I say, excluding the Welsh. <laughs> so all that early stuff just isn't in there at all. But this work has been so pervasive, thanks originally to Caxton, because it got printed.
1: Yes, it's not it's not the third book published by Caxton. It's within a decade, because it's in 1476 that Caxton comes back to England and sets up, you know, the first printing shop in England. And it's in 1485 that he's publishing Mort d'Arthur.
0: So, yeah, so Mort d'Arthur is seen by him as one of these... Emblematic giant works of, that needs to be presented in in English.
1: It's um, it's
0: Chaucer, you know, who
1: was not a living author. He had he had died in thirteen ninety nine. So Chaucer was by this point an author with a really big reputation. Um, so he publishes all of Chaucer. He publishes Lydgate. He publishes John John Gore. And so by then pivoting and publishing, Mallory, he's he's making a statement about how important he thinks more to our tour is.
0: Yeah, and he takes out a great deal of the um, please pray that I be let out of prison stuff.
1: Yeah, Caxton seems to have done the last generation of famous authors and then turned his attention to the recently contemporaries. Because Mallory was dead by then, of course. He died in 1471, but it wasn't that much.
0: Wasn't that long ago. Right, 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 right. So most of the Arthurian works which follow use him as a template. It's like, if you know tarot cards, you know, uh, and you go to buy a deck of tarot cards, you are most likely going to be buying a deck that is either the rider weight deck that Pamela Coleman-Smith um, illustrated, or one of its clones, because the rider weight is so ubiquitous and so pervasive that that's what people tend to think of when they think of tarot cards. But it's actually fair, you know, it's... it's no, not only is it fairly... There's other systems entirely that you could use. And so... Mallory's Mark D'Arthur is like that. People tend to think of that as being the template. But it wasn't. He had put some things together. Nowadays, that's what's ubiquitous. And uh, one of the versions that I find most amusing would be T.H. Uh, White's Once and Future King. Because, among other things, one of the things he's doing, and he keeps Coming in as the narrator and trying to explain this, he's trying to make sense of the Mort Darthur altogether, which it kind of doesn't because the characters act differently in different pieces of it, and so 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 T H White explains with psychological reasons how this might be so. I find this highly amusing. You know, it seems to me that we need like little medals for attempting to do a podcast about the Middle Ages whilst our country is in such difficulties. I would like a medal. Would you like a medal? Let's make medals.
1: I uh, really, really wanted to read more of the giant biography than I got through, but... I felt like I had two and a half functioning brain cells this last week.
0: Mm -hmm. Most of of it was spent either doom scrolling or actually watching the news. That's what I was doing. And I kept waking up in the middle of the night to do more doom scrolling, just in case something had happened, which indeed sometimes it had.
1: Last night was the first night I'd slept through the night since last Wednesday.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so by the time any of you are listening to this, we will have recorded this two weeks before you actually get it. And so who knows what's going on in the nation called America at the point at which you get this. Who knows? But at any rate, Mallory, Mort d'Arthur.
1: But Mallory is such a, and Mort d'Arthur is such an apropos thing to be looking at and to be talking about because Mallory takes the Arthurian legend and instead of it being a story about individual sins, it becomes a story about, the danger of civil war it's it's it he takes it and he makes it a a reflection you know on uh, on the turmoil that he'd lived through it the the tragedy becomes about a society ripping itself apart
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's no longer a story about a wonderful a, a great warrior who fights in battles And it's it's no longer even really, although it's in there, the story about, you know, there's this romantic adultery, which shows up twice because there's not just Lancelot and Guinevere. There's also this entire segue where what we're hearing about is um, Tristan and Isolde. So that seems to be something he's really interested in. that's simply about how the country rips itself apart. Sometimes Mordorator gets talked
1: about as being a translation, and and no. it is not a translation. Mm-mm. He is making very deliberate choices about what to include and what to exclude. And I think that there is an argument to be made that Mallory's version of the Arthurian legend has survived, and the legend itself then continues to be retold in English when it doesn't really, you know, it's it's kind of a dead story in French and in German, even though it was humongous and being told everywhere throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, the only place where it successfully transitions after the Middle Ages, and continues to be a living vein of story is in English, and it's because of Mallory. Mallory is sitting at this moment where he is medieval enough to understand, but early modern enough to translate, and he provides this cultural translation. He takes the Arthurian story, he he eliminates, you know, there's this whole collection of stories about Merlin that were, were in his source material that he just omits.
0: He has Merlin in there. But yeah, there's a great, great deal more that doesn't come down to us through Mallory. Yeah, He doesn't
1: have, you know, the stuff about Merlin's birth and the two dragons and Fordegern and, and inviting Hengist and Horsa over. That whole thing, he's just, zoop, eliminated it. He eliminates a whole bunch of the magic from his source material and heightens the... Military strategy parts of things. So, so battles are won not because something woohoo happened, but because somebody came up with a great strategy.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You would expect
1: this from a soldier.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's
1: like the you know I'm not wild about the concept with a gritty reboot, but this is kind of the gritty reboot. Where he's he's taking it taking something that had been strictly in the realm of romance and trying he can't do it as much as he can't do it completely because Arthur really is strongly in the realm of romance and but trying as much as possible to infuse
0: it with some military reality. And some human reality. The military reality kind of takes it back to um some of its earlier roots, although that magic is in there in a lot of the certainly the Welsh. And it's human reality. How? What are you thinking?
1: I'm thinking about how he focuses on the unresolvable tragedy of the, of the adultery, right. That, that none of them are, I mean, Guinevere is kind of a bad person, but she's a bad person because <laughs> she's spoiled, not because of the adultery, you know? Yeah. 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 She's childish and selfish and spoiled and expects things to get, get things her own way, but it's not the adultery that makes her a bad person. It's those personality traits. Lancelot is not a bad person. Arthur is not a bad person. They're all flawed and interesting. So so there's this dramatic tragedy, right, that is at the core of it that I think ends up being why it holds together. It's kind of a trick that he manages to create a story where we don't have contempt for Arthur because He's being cuckolded. He makes this move where Arthur, Arthur putting up with the adultery is strength rather than weakness because he is sacrificing his reputation, not his reputation, his his personal kind of pride for the purpose of keeping the round table together, keeping his society together because it, it's like this um, public versus private. It's okay. The only person being hurt if the adultery can be kept quiet, is him, and he's willing to take that. Once it becomes external, he has to deal with it because now, now it's something that is in, is endangering the entire society. But Arthur becomes this Christ-like figure. In Mallory, in terms of being able to, being willing to take on personal suffering for the purpose of sparing other people. And that's a pretty strong writing move because Arthur, in the French sources, had very much become a sidelined figure. It wasn't his story anymore. The French sources had decided, no, no, really, Lancelot is the star of this whole thing. But of course, the French knight. Mallory, I mean, it's not. People have been saying forever that that Mallory, the author, sees himself in Lancelot. And I think that's probably fair. This flawed knight who keeps making mistakes but is trying.
0: Well, it's interesting then if you're thinking about what it is that Mallory does with the grail. Uh, material because the quest for the Holy Grail is uh, much more involved in Chrétien. You end up with with Percival. My favorite piece of that is where Percival could see the Grail, but he doesn't because he forgets to ask the important question, whom does the Grail serve? And he doesn't ask it because he's being polite. And so, which teaches us that we should not pay attention to being polite so much as actually to getting the job done. But really in Mallory, It's been cut down somewhat. And of course, you would think that everybody thinks that Lancelot's going to bring the grail home, but that's because they don't know about the affair with Guinevere yet. And it's his illegitimate son, Galahad, who actually manages it. And quite, this is, yes, this Galahad gets it gets to get it because he's pure in heart and galahad is this product of not just being illegitimate but also of of deceit and lancelot being fooled it's a nicely problematic thing because galahad himself is not carrying all the sins of the of lancelot he just doesn't he's all pure and he gets to go get the grail but lancelot doesn't get the grail any more, i suppose than mallory does
1: Um, I should have mentioned earlier that when Mallory is accused of rape, it's possible that that is a accusation that's being brought by the husband. Because you can, as the husband, if your wife has had adultery with somebody, you can accuse the seductor of rape. Because you didn't go along with it as the husband, so it's possible that what's going on there is an illicit relationship, which which seems to be something um, people are kind of circling because it's the same woman twice, uh huh, and that it's her husband who is pressing that case.
0: Mm-hmm. That it might not actually be assault and rape; it might be an affair. maybe seduction and adultery. Yeah, there's some ways and there's some things we can't actually tell about that language. That's true. Well, and and. Because of
1: who can make the accusation, right? The husband can do that to save face. Yes. Which Arthur does not. Arthur does not I can have as many wives as I want but no you know I get all can have as many wives as need be I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have my copy of Mallory in front of me right this instant which was an oversight on my part but he says something like wives are a dime a dozen but such a collection of noble knights will never be seen again on the face of the earth so I'm gonna tolerate this rather than break my society apart yeah, it's in his hands that the Arthurian legend becomes a story of a society that tears itself apart because it becomes factionalized and it felt very apropos this week.
0: Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Mm. And Gawain, Gawain torn about what to do. Yeah.
1: His handling of the characters, you know, they they don't in every stories start to feel like real people, but the the psychological insight, particularly in the last piece, the fall of the round table and the handling of the revealing of the adultery and Arthur having to deal with it, he very much presents each of these figures as well intended, right? Except Mordred, of course. Mordred, Mordred and Agravain are the bad guys. They just want to see the world burn. But the rest of them are making the best decision in bad circumstances and you feel for all of them you feel for gowan when his brothers have died you feel for lancelot he didn't intend to kill gareth he knighted gareth
0: yeah it is he adds in that you can see that to be fair that's what um that's what th white is building on mm-hmm. here's the piece that michelle is talking about this is chapter nine so turn we again unto king arthur that when it was told him how and in what manner of wise the queen was taken away from the fire this is when lancelot had saved her because she's being burnt for treason and adultery and when he heard of the death of his noble knights especially sir Gaheris and sir Garris' death the king swooned for pure sorrow and when he awoke of his swoon then he said alas that ever i have crown upon my head for now i have lost the fairest fellowship of noble knights that ever held Christians and king together. Alas, my good knights be slain away from me, now within these two days I have lost forty knights, and also the noble fellowship of Sir Lancelot and his blood, for now I may never hold them together, no more, with my worship. Alas, that ever this war began. Now, fair fellow, said the king, I charge you that no man tell Sir Gawain of the death of his two brethren, for I am sure, said the king, when Sir Gawain heareth tell that Sir Gareth is dead, he will go nigh out of his mind. Mercy, said the king, why slew he Sir Gareth and Sir Gaheris? for I dare say, as for Sir Gareth, he loved Sir Launcelot above all men earthly.' That is truth, said some knights, but they were slain in the hurtling, as Sir Launcelot thrang in the thick of the press, and as they were unarmed, he smote them, and wist not whom that he smote, and so unhappily they were slain. The death of them, said Arthur, will cause the greatest mortal war that ever was. I am sure, wist Sir Gawain that Sir Gawith were slain, I should never have rest of him till I had destroyed Sir Launcelot's kin and himself both, or else he to destroy me. And therefore, said the king, wit you well, my heart was never so heavy as it is now, and much more am I sorrier for my good knight's loss than for the loss of my fair queen. For queens I might have anow, but such a fellowship of good knights shall never be together in no company. And now I dare say, said King Arthur, that there was never Christian king held such a fellowship together, and alas, that ever Sir Lancelot and I should be at debate. Ah, Agravain, Agravain, said the king, Yesu, forgive it thy soul for thine evil will, that thou and thy brother Sir Mordred hadst done to Sir Lancelot, had caused all this sorrow. And ever among these complaints, the king wept and swooned.
1: He's really, really Brilliant.
0: <laughs> he is, I will grant you
1: that. And it just, you know, we keep poking at it because the book he wrote and the life he appears to have led do not match.
0: Which is one of the reasons that we like to think that perhaps what is going on, and it could of course be going on, is that Buckingham is just simply hounding him and he hasn't actually done all these dreadfulnesses or they have been misspoke. One of the things that is striking about
1: Mortartour d'Artour is its handling of Lancelot and Guinevere's adultery. Mallory sidesteps it wherever possible.
0: whereas the French tend to focus yes. on it.
1: So in his version of, so for example, in his version of Guinevere being uh, kidnapped, um, this is the Chrétien's, the, the original story is Chrétien's, Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, and there's absolutely adultery that happens there. In Mallory's version of it, he's trying to kind of like sidestep it, and you know, maybe it happened. And even later on, when Lancelot is flat up captured by Mordred and Agravain in the Queen's Chamber, Mallory has this little sidebar of well, you know, we have no idea what they were actually up to in here, so get your mind out of the gutter. (laughs) They were reading books together. They could have been playing chess. You have no idea. Ch-
0: chess is good. Chess is good. Yeah.
1: He really, really feels for Lancelot and tries as much as possible to, to burnish him, even though he's inherited a ton of stuff that Lancelot is doing that he's not supposed to be doing. He also, I mean, I, I, there's so many things I love about Mortar Tour. There is this lovely kind of moment of skepticism about trial by combat, <laughs> where Lancelot says, oh, I'll fight for the queen. And the other knights are like, that seems bogus to us because you always win. <laughs> yeah, so that doesn't mean anything. We have skepticism <laughs> about whether that has anything to do with God. <laughs> There's a great moment when she's accused of having poisoned a knight with a with a poison apple and the knights object to Arthur um, having anything to do with her defense and they say to him you are just a first among equals you are but a knight as we are and the more i read about medieval things the more shocking that statement is that they say to the king no you're not anything special you're just first among equals that's what the round table means it is hard to overestimate the importance of Mordartour Tour. pretty much every version of of the Arthurian story in English that comes after him either derives from him or is in tension with
0: him. Mm-hmm. It's including um The Mist of Avalon. Yeah. Which seems to not be like Mort Darthur at all, but is A response to Mark D'Arthur, it's all in there. A rereading of it, a reimagining of the original. He's such a huge, huge presence. Yes, and to be fair, it's not just because Caxton printed him, it's because it's a really good book. (laughs) It's just a beautifully written And you can focus on different pieces of it, depending on what interests you most.
1: I have a well-thumbed middle grade, middle school adaptation that is almost certainly my entryway
0: into being a medievalist, the one that I had as a child. And Mallory did end up in prison for something he actually really had done, because he was plotting against the king. An interesting little piece of this, isn't it just? But... Whether or not he had done and all the other things he's accused of, he certainly is someone who knows the military well. He knows how power works very well. He knows what it's like to be incarcerated. He knows what it's like to be out of favor with people in power. And he knows what it is to move against the king.
1: Yeah, he has an understanding of the dangers of this kind of conflict. Um, he certainly writes in the in the earlier ver- in the earlier you know some of the earlier pieces like gareth's story are m- more like the romance that he uses as a as as the the source material but the end of his book is really very different than a lot of his source material that mourning for the loss of the um, of of the ideal and that's that is kind of a thing in the 15th century. There's there is this huge as knighthood is transitioning out of being a military, it's moving from being a military force to being a social force. They're creating this ideal of the Arthurian and are doing more with it as a cultural presence. So there's they're having tournaments that are Arthurian themed tournaments, and I'm trying to think of an I'm trying to think of a an equivalent to this. I guess it's kind of like doing Revolutionary War reenacting, but that's not really, that's not really a good equivalent of it. The Arthurian is being used in the 15th century as, as a response to the turbulent times that they are in as a way to posit a less turbulent past to be used as an ideal to get out, you know, a path out of the turbulence that they're currently living in. It's it's trying to hail back to a a past where we behaved better that didn't actually exist. But what Mallory ends up doing is codifying and and in some ways creating the version of the Middle Ages that is now the cultural version that everybody thinks probably it's interesting because here at the end of the middle ages, you have like the beginning of medieval cosplay because this is what they're doing in the tournaments. They're dressing up like King Arthur. They're, they're doing all these things. And Mallory is just perfectly positioned to be the translator of that for the later, for the later centuries. And it took us a long time to realize that that was less of a less of a representation of reality than 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 we thought it was <laughs> because partially because he's so convincing in his telling
0: well and so he's writing in a very turbulent time where indeed these ideals have been lost i mean you can't even you can't even tell really who's king who's supposed to be king what king even means sometimes when you've got two Plantagenet lines fighting it out in the War of the Cousins and decimating England in the in the process. Yeah, many of the major battles
1: of the Wars of the Roses are happening right in the Midlands, right where the Mallories
0: are living. Yeah, they're in the middle of stuff. And uh, he becomes someone who changes sides, you know from one king to another. And <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, yeah, I don't know. They're both sort of, you know, feeble kings. I, Edward's better, I suppose. So there's an ideal there. But, and again, the ideal hadn't been there to begin with. And we'll just end up leaving all this stuff and going into the Tudors. That's what we'll end up with. But they they try to latch
1: on to some of it and use it, you know. Henry VII. Henry Names his first son Arthur, he's trying to latch on to that ideal, that concept that had been put out there. Henry VIII has, still has tournaments that are Arthurian themed. But, you know, you can see the 15th century becoming this end of the real end of the Middle Ages with, with Richard III being the last English king to die in battle. So, I got a couple of other interesting bits about Mallory if you want to hear them. Do tell. Do tell. We're getting depressed here, guys. We're getting really depressed cuz like <laughs> I really yeah. do love the 15th century though, even though it's such a disaster because it's such an interesting disaster. They're fighting over so many things that are so influential. I don't think we we grasp how many things that are being fought out in the Middle Ages influence the little colony that's created a couple hundred years later over here on the other side of the pond. Yeah, where they're fighting out who's who's more important, the king or the law. We're still apparently having that argument. Apparently we are. Uh, we had thought it was over, but apparently not. Uh, alas. Pointing yeah. back to how central that particular argument actually is. So I was... I was surprised when I was doing the research here to find out what things don't exist about Mallory. I was absolutely expecting to find tons of historical fiction about him. He is an interesting guy. Yes, very interesting. I was absolutely expecting to find lots of historical fiction focused on
0: Mallory. I didn't. That's shocking to me. And I think um, that since since historical fiction is one of the things that you do, I think you should write it. I would like, um, that's my request. Please write me a historical fiction about Mallory. Thank you very much. Yeah, it made my fingers itch. And it may be partially because it
1: was only in 1999 that um, PJ C. Field, who is the world's leading expert on Mallory. As a, as a topic of study, um, published The Life and Times of Sir Thomas Mallory. I remember this book coming out. It was a big hairy deal to have this book come out that argues persuasively that Thomas Mallory of Newbold Reveled Revel is the author. When I was first taught Mallory as an undergraduate, it was all, well, we're not really sure. Could be this guy. Could be that guy. And then this book came out.
0: Right. Yeah. That's what I That's what I had been taught. We didn't really know who he was. It was just some guy named Thomas Mallory. And we didn't know. Now we do. We know who he was. Now we do. It was a hard, it was kind of a hard motor
1: scooterist because we did have all those records and it was really causing trouble to try to figure out how he could both write this book of, of courtesy, but also... Have all of have have this kind of uh, rap sheet.
0: <laughs> Although, to be fair, uh, as we know from Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, the whole concept of being a chivalric knight in King Arthur's court requires that you obey several different uh, laws, none of which actually are compatible, the Christian rule, the chivalric rule, and the military rule, and they kind of don't always fit together. And so really, it just would make sense that he was obeying several different rules at once, and some of them self-serving, perhaps, yes. So 1999 wasn't actually that long ago,
1: so it may be that one of the reasons we don't have that flood of historical fiction about Mallory is is that it just hasn't trickled out
0: there yet. You have to get in on this quick. You have to get in on there quick. This is your next job, madam. I'm just saying. Um, I think we need a version that is
1: like that movie about Dickens. <laughs> um, the the Man Who Invented Christmas, where uh-huh. it is both his life and the characters, and you get to see where he interacts with things that then provide inspiration for A
0: Christmas Carol. I will go along with that. And I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, some Sometimes, dear listeners, I get to read the manuscripts, and so I'm looking forward to this.
1: <laughs> the other thing that I found out about him, and that I was stunned to discover is that he has an IMDB page. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> because More to Artur is so often cited as a source for movies, <laughs> he gets screenplay credit.
0: So screenplay credit, but no historical fiction. I don't know. I think, I don't know that he would, wouldn't mind
1: that. And he was nominated for a Hugo in 1982 for partial writing credit for Excalibur, for John Borman's Excalibur.
0: Did Did he get this Hugo?
1: He did not win this Hugo.
0: It was going to be hard to give it to him. I would have liked to see him at the presentations. That would have been quite interesting. The
1: writing team for Excalibur, which he was credited as being part of, was nominated for a Hugo. I think you are an amazing writer when you get nominated for a Hugo 500 years after you die.
0: (laughs) Yes, I, I think that that is true. That is truly an accomplishment and... I'm impressed. the 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 Hugo was
1: won that year by um, for best dramatic presentation by Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I can
0: live with. Okay, yeah. Okay, sure. Right. Why not? Yeah. Okay.
1: But Excalibur was nominated. It was. It
0: was in there. He had a nomination. Yep. Mm. As the source for the
1: screenplay.
0: I'd like to see him get an Oscar. That's another goal now that I have. I want you to write a book, and I want Mallory to get an Oscar. <laughs> I. I I have now, I have now goals. That's good.
1: Some of the screenplay credit on IMDb, three of them are for porn. Arthuria, it's porn based on Mortar Artur. It's, um, this, I have to actually go back and look at it. So I get this name right. I got to get the name right. The name is hilarious.
0: God knows we don't want to get that wrong.
1: Excalibur, the Lords of Sex. Uh, there's three of them. <laughs> and it's not it's not Excalibur, it's like just an X, Excalibur.
0: Excalibur, X, Excalibur. okay, yeah, sure, yeah, Excalibur. So maybe
1: those three credits, you know, we don't necessarily want to point to. But...
0: No, I, I'm going to include them. If we're going to include the credits for screenwriting, we got to include that because that's just how it is. And besides, Lancelot, Guinevere, Tristan, Isolde, I'm sorry, it's all in there. But
1: at the at the end, um, and as I'm sure you remember, of T.H. White's *The Once and Future King*, he has King Arthur, the dying King Arthur, look up at the little page boy and ask him to tell his
0: story, and he has that be Mallory, and that's Mallory, yeah. It's delightful. Uh, it is it's very good oh and by the way for the, sh- i'm sure you all know listeners but camelot the musical is based on the once and future king just in case you as is i think that whole disney thing but camelot even much better so, so sometimes mallory is the grand text rather than the
1: immediate text Right. So Once the Future King is based on Mallory, but then that is the source for Camelot. So it's more like the grand text.
0: Yes, you could do a whole little chart of all the Arthurian texts that exist. uh, I I mean, that you could find because some of them are actually, they they, they fall, some of them like I've read, but they've like fallen out of print and they're gone and nobody mentions them. It's just the, the Arthurian texts are all over. You could do a giant chart of all of them and how they're related to each other. That would be lovely. And somebody should do that. That would be good.
1: He's read so many of them. So you have the funnel coming into Mallory and then you have the waterfall coming after him.
0: And then still some absolute inventions. The Lady of Shalott That's what, Tennyson didn't it? Tennyson. Yeah. Tennyson's Lady of Shalott. That's not Mort D'Arthur. He made that up.
1: Yeah. Oh, you remember in an earlier podcast, we we were talking about Tennyson's plays?
0: Yes, we were. And I wasn't impressed.
1: I had like a brain fart and pretended I didn't know what the Foresters was about. Of course, I know what it's about. It's Robin Hood. He wrote a Robin Hood play. I just wasn't, the Robin Hood part of my brain wasn't online that day.
0: Which is unusual because usually it's right there for you. Mm,
1: We were were talking about something else and my brain was full. Of course. I know what that's about.
0: Yeah. How our brains get full. So, anything else on Mallory?
1: I recommend if I, I think I said this already, but the places to go to to read about Mallory would be for an academic source. It would be PJC Fields, The Life and Times of Sir Thomas Mallory, that proves that it's Sir Thomas Mallory of New Bold Rebel. Uh, that's from 1999. And then Christina. Hardy Mallory, the knight who became King Arthur's chronicler. You know, you have to make allowances with it that it is being written by a historian who is coming to the medieval text. So I think there's a couple things in it that are probably a little out of date, although it does. I was happy that she pointed out that he almost certainly saw the Coventry plays. (gasps) Did she? Of course. They only lived seven miles from Coventry.
0: I love that. Oh, Mallory saw the Coventry plays, yes, but it's a very big old meaty biography that does a
1: lot of contextualization in for the time period. so she talks about how children you know so the the book at the right at the beginning talks about well, where the Mallory got their money, how they ended up with seven thousand acres of of an estate, uh, what sort of things would have been happening when he was born? how babies were christened. I mean, there is, there's all this contextualization about time period as much as about the man himself.
0: I'm going to go get it as soon as we are done recording. And it's very readable, but
1: medieval medievalist probably going to find something, you know, a few things to quibble with that are no longer how we think about the middle ages. But generally speaking, I would say that that's not really going to be a thing.
0: All right. So let's end with this. This is uh, the end of Mort D'Arthur. Here's the end of the whole book of King Arthur and his noble knights of the round table that when they were whole together, there was ever a 140. And here's the end of the death of Arthur. I pray you all, gentlemen and gentlewomen that read this book of Arthur and his knights from the beginning to the ending, pray for me while I am on live that God send me good deliverance. And when I am dead, I pray you all pray for my soul, for this book was endeth the ninth year of the reign of King Edward the Fourth by Sir Thomas Mallory Knight as Yesu help him for his great might, as he is the servant of Yesu both day and night.
1: You know what's wild is he was writing more to Artur. It is exactly contemporaneous with mankind. How likely is it that my two favorite pieces of medieval literature are from that same 10-year time period? They're exactly contemporaneous.
0: Well, the next time that we get together, we will be discussing the murder of Mabel de Belém.
1: Ooh, I know nothing about that. I'll learn lots of things.
0: So that'll be exciting. And that, that's in Normandy in um, the 11th century. So we're going backwards and we're going to Normandy. Yay. And this has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, but with less technology. We're on Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher, any place that you can listen to podcasts. That's where we are. Please leave a review. We'd appreciate that. And you can reach us at truecrimemedieval.com, where you can find the show notes, which are written by Michelle, the transcripts, which are done for us by Lori Dietrich, and you can also reach us all through the webpage. And you can leave comments. We would love to hear from you. And if you have medieval crimes that you think we should discuss, please let us know, and we'll take it under consideration. And we bid you farewell. Bye.
1: Bye.